Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Yeah, so I'm a little under the weather today, by the way, so I, although it's getting worked out, my, my voice was really low and soothing last service. I was like, hey... So, but it's getting, you know, all the kinks are getting worked out here. But the good news about that is when I'm sick, I talk slower because my brain doesn't work as well, which is good for you guys. And because I, I talk slower, I'm a little more deliberate and uh, everything else. But so if I didn't shake your hand today, it's because I don't want to get you sick. I just maybe like elbow you or something like that. Like, hey, what's up? So Halloween block party. We had 4,000 people at our Halloween block party. I mean, that's a record. That's a record of anything we've ever done here in the history of Compass Church. We had 4,000 people from our community on Halloween, and they got the message that we care about them, that God cares about them. Like, who goes to church on Halloween? Well, 4,000 people from our community did. And so you guys, thank you so much to those of you who did trunks, to, those, to, our, to the staff and volunteers. You guys worked so incredibly hard, and it was worth it. It was worth it because of the, the splash that we were able to make in our town because we love our city. We really do. This is my farewell series, as you know. You'll be hearing more about this, but we're beginning the process of a new senior pastor search. You'll hear more about this at the end of the service. But the series that we're on is called Keep the Fire Burning because I sincerely hope that that is what happens. Whether you've been here for 12 years or this is your first Sunday because you showed up at the block party and you're like, hey, this church seems like it's a pretty cool place. My hope is that there be a fire burning in your soul for the things that matter to God and that you would see your life as absolutely critical and in instrumental to his mission, that he has called you, birthed you, created you at this place for this time to be able to make his name known to the people around you because that is his goal, is that people would find freedom and joy and forgiveness and grace and mercy, but it would happen because of you. And because of your life, and so I hope that you understand that and that you internalize that and take it very seriously. So we've been looking at the book of Titus in the New Testament. You can go ahead and turn there right now in your Bible. Last week we said that the church ultimately belongs to God. It isn't about one leader. It doesn't rise and fall on one personality. It is the bride of Jesus Christ, and he takes care of his bride. But we also said that God raises up leaders to be able to oversee and tend to his church. But those leaders actually should come from within the church. So what that means for us is that our leaders need to be coming from here. And we made the point that our future connection group leaders and pastors and elders 
and other leaders are sitting right now in our children's ministry as children or our student ministry as seventh and eighth graders. And that that is God's plan. And, and, and he's, of course, sitting out here among some of you. But God doesn't import these people from outside. He raises them up from within. And so it's our responsibility to think about that. And it's the job of these leaders to stoke the flames of the gospel, but to also make sure that we never get off course in the message of our church, that we never lose the essence of our core message which is the gospel. Because if we do, then, you know, it may seem the same here, but we're gonna lose everything that makes us who we are. We're gonna lose our whole reason for being. And so for the churches on the island of Crete, because that's where Paul is writing, Paul is writing to his protege Titus on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean where he has left him to straighten out the things that are left unfinished and to help these churches get strengthened and get on their mission. And so for Paul, when he's writing to these churches in the island of Crete, he's worried about one of the biggest threats to the core message, and it's really one of the biggest threats to our core message. If you wanna know what threatens our church in the long run, there are several things, but this is one of them that we're going to read about, and it's starting from chapter one, verse 10. So he's just got done saying why we need to have godly leaders and what those godly leaders look like, right? And then he kind of says, he expounds on that in verse 10. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I love that. That's like one of my favorite verses. Because that's back in the day when you could stereotype and nobody got outraged. Because they're like, yeah, actually, that's true. We're, if we're honest, that's the way, that's kind of how we are. Now, where does that come from, by the way? Just so you know, in case you know, you're like, wow, that's really mean. Well, Paul is actually quoting a guy named Epimenides, who was a Cretan poet and philosopher from about 500 years before, and he was considered a religious prophet. And so this reputation of Cretans being liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons over, the, over 500 years has pretty much been settled in people's minds. It's like, you just don't want to trust these guys. They're just kind of off and, and you, you know, they have a reputation. In fact, the Greek word for liar in the Greek language that this was written in is the word kreatso, right? So their word Cretan actually means liar. It's kind of like Google started off as a noun and then it became a verb, right? You Google something. It's just like, that's how you, that's, it's because it's the, the term is so widely understood that that's how it adopted itself into their very language. So he's using this, their reputation to say, you've got a lot of people here that you better be on the lookout for, in particular, the circumcision party, which is kind of a funny phrase to put those two words together. Because I don't think you'd ever have a circumcision party. Like, there wouldn't be that many people that want to go to a party like that, right? But he's referring to a group of people, mostly Jewish converts to Christianity, and they were adding things to what it meant to be a Christian, 
In particular, they were adding circumcision. So they're like, yeah, you know, Jesus is great. He died for your sins. But you know, he was a Jew, which means he was circumcised. And if he was circumcised, then I got bad news for you, Angelo. You got to get circumcised too. If you really want to be one of us, if you really want to be in the club, if you really want to be holy and actually saved, it's not enough just to say you believe in Jesus. You got to take this little um, box cutter and go off and we have little stalls for you and we'll see you in a week once you're all healed up. Now, here's the thing. What was the ultimate threat for them and what is the ultimate threat for us? And all of you need to be aware of this moving into the future. The threat is adding stuff to the gospel, right? Now, now I want to take a step back for a minute because when you look at these guys, and we've talked about this kind of thing a lot over the years. We've talked about the Jews of that were early Jewish, they were early converts to Christianity, and then they would want other Gentiles. And by the way, the Gentiles are basically us, right? Unless you have Jewish blood in your veins, unless you are, are in the line of, of the Jewish line, when it comes to people that were seen by, the, by those people as unclean, um, as impure, that would be us, Gentiles, non-Jews, right? Now you have to ask yourself the question, why did these guys think this way? You know, why did they, th and because we often tend to judge our historical figures and we go, oh, you know, these people in history that we venerate, they're actually terrible because they do things differently than we would think this should be done because we weren't in their culture, right? And so we just naturally assume bad things. And so it would be easy to do with these guys. They were just sadistic, you know, evil people. Like they just wanted to see other guys in pain. But that really wasn't the issue for them. And this is the larger principle that's at work here. I think that these Jewish converts to Christianity were honestly shocked by who God was willing to save. In other words, they were like, God saves the strangest people. This can't be right. And if you think about it, it's hard to blame them because all of their lives, they were raised to, to know that they were the chosen people. You know, we just talked in communion about how the Jews were set free from the land of Egypt and God made them a people and gave them a land and, and his spirit was with them and they were on a mission to let everybody know about them. And so it was, it was very much an ethnic thing, right? And so to, and, and their, their whole lives, they were told to be separate. So they didn't worship the false gods of the Roman empire. They didn't sleep with the temple prostitutes. They didn't eat the kosher or the non-kosher food that was seen as kind of dirty. And, and it wasn't an arrogant thing as much as it was, we're just different. We've been, we've been set apart. We've been set aside. We're holy people. You guys aren't, no, no offense but we're called to be a light and you're not really part of this. And you can kind of understand their thinking and how shocking it would be that all of a sudden Jesus comes along and all these, these unclean non-Jewish people have to do is repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And now in essence, they're one of us and worse yet, we're kind of one of them. I mean, think about that. Like, because what did I say a few minutes ago? This is a new human race. The church is a new human race. 
And we leave our political and our ethnic and our cultural lineages behind. Not that those things don't still factor into our experience and part of who we are, but that's not ultimately what defines us. What defines us is that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and we stand as brothers and sisters now gathered together in the family of God. We have been brought from death to life. We are new people, a new creation. Peter says in 1 Peter, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, right? People belonging to God. So this is a whole new thing. And for the, I think for the Jewish believers, they, they, they're old, they're buddies that were like this Jewish, but they weren't converts. It's almost embarrassing. It's like, you're hanging out with those guys now? I mean, seriously, like, really? Come on, man. And, and so it's, it's, it would be a wrestling for them. And why is that? Because they were legitimately shocked at who God was willing to save. And this is a massive theme of the New Testament. If you understand this, you will understand more than 95% of Christians, especially in America, that God loves to save the strangest people, people that you and I think are beyond saving. And here's the thing that you have to know. While we talk about the circumcision party, and we go, look out for those people, we have to also make sure that we're not the ones holding the knife. And you will find that your, the chances are, the longer you've been a Christian, and the more you've given yourself to Jesus, the more apt you are to be the one holding the knife when someone new comes in and says, wait a second, God, is that person really saved? I mean, look at them. You don't save those kinds of people. And yet, if you want to read the New Testament, which you should on your own time, you will understand, because less like, well, I don't understand what it means. When Paul talks in books like Galatians, especially, and other books in the New Testament, he's not taught, he's not, and he kind of gets upset. He's not getting upset at the people that are getting wasted, you know, on Friday nights and, and that, you know, kind of, you know, have a little bit of looser sexual morals. Not that those things are, are, are necessarily good either, but his, the thing he tends to get most upset about are the, are the people holding the knives. It's the Jewish converts that are trying to add stuff to the gospel and turn it into something that it isn't. And they kill the message when they do that. So for example, there's a, if you look at the books of, a book of Acts, there's a story where Peter is given a vision by God where he, is, he sees all these unclean animals that the Jews weren't supposed to eat. All his life, he's like, don't eat that piece of bacon. Which is really hard when you think about it. Especially like, like I had eight pieces of bacon yesterday, okay? Because I was sick. And when you're sick, I was like comfort eating, you know what I mean? I'm like, I need bacon. And so, like I don't care what I eat when I'm sick. So anyway, but the point is, it's really hard. And then, and then God says, hey, Peter, eat that, right? And he's like, I can't eat that. It's unclean. And God says, what? Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. Whoa, that's a pretty huge paradigm shift. I mean, that would be like taking a vegan to Rudy's. And putting a little napkin on them and saying, okay, you better dump some barbecue sauce on that and get going. You'd be like, God, I can't do this. This violates my conscience. So this is the kind of stuff that they're dealing with, right? Now, even crazier than that, though, because I want to give you context so you understand, is in Acts chapter 8, there's a story of what's called Philip and the Ethiopian. And this is where God 
commands a guy named Philip, an, a, a disciple of Jesus, to go and talk to this Ethiopian um, who's, who's, a, who's in the service of someone named Queen Candace from, um, really from, the, from Sudan, right? So it'd be modern day Sudan or Ethiopia. It's actually, at the time is Ethiopia, but be kind of like south of Egypt, right? So he goes all the way to Jerusalem because he wants to worship God. But here's the thing about this guy. So he's sitting there in his little chariot and he's reading Isaiah. But the thing about him is he's a eunuch. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, a eunuch is basically a dude that's usually brought into the service of the royal court and he's neutered, right? So if you don't know what that means, you can look that up. But it's not good. It's worse than circumcision by a mile. So he's neutered and they would do this and he probably got put into the queen's service when he was a kid. And they neutered him so he wouldn't mess around with the other ladies in the royal court or whatever, and so he could just stay focused. So now you say, okay, well, he's a eunuch. What's the big deal? That happened to people in the ancient world. But what you don't know about eunuchs is that in that period of time, they were the most rejected people, not just among the Jewish circles, but in all of the Roman Empire. In fact, according to a guy named Dr. Craig Ott, he points this out. He says they were mocked profusely, jokes made about them constantly. They were seen as neither male nor female. They were basically seen as sexless monsters. That's how they were seen. And they said, if the first person you saw in the morning when you opened your door was a eunuch, that was a bad omen. They were told not to invite them anywhere. You never would invite a eunuch to your party. You never wanted to talk to them. You never wanted to be seen with them. Yeah, they were in the service of the royal court, but you were not to, it was very, very bad form to even get near one of these guys or be considered friends with them. They were seen as basically hideous people. As I said, neither male nor female. And they wouldn't have been allowed into the Jewish temple. So he's on his way, really on a mission that's gonna fail because he's gonna to get to the temple and they're gonna turn him away. So while he's outside, he's reading this and he sees Philip and Philip engages him and he goes, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, how can I understand if no one explains it to me? I'm reading, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip explains to him that the Messiah is going to come and that he has opens the door to everybody and that there's grace and forgiveness and inclusion for, for everybody who has a heart beating in their chest and that someday God is going to take a people for himself from every corner of the earth and it even talks about eunuchs in the Old Testament, that there'll even be a place for eunuchs. In fact, it says they will not be cut off, which I think is kind of a funny pun. But it's true. Their inheritance will not be cut This is a big deal. And so then the eunuch goes, well, what prevents me from getting baptized? And he says, nothing. And I think the reason why, as I was reading this, is because he doesn't know if he's ever gonna get a chance to get baptized after he wants to get baptized right now. Now, here's the part that should blow your mind. He turns around and goes back home to Ethiopia as the first Ethiopian Christian. So the first person that God chose to represent him to a new nation of people is functionally a transgendered person. Now, didn't become male to female, but you know what I'm saying? A, a, seen as a non-binary, seen as a neither male nor female, and hated by the culture at large. That would have been shocking to the first century world. 
God doesn't do stuff like that. God doesn't do, God doesn't save people like that. This is the context in which they're in. So, we look at today. God saves the strangest people. Have you listened to the new Kanye album? I did. Now, I'm, I admittedly, I know that you think, you look at me and you go, dude, this guy must live and die on hip hop, you know? <laughs> but I, I, I like all kinds of different music and I have listened to like, the, the regular mainstream hip hop I struggle with because it's so blatant with the lyrics and stuff and, and just, not even my kids, but just me just like, I, it's just hard for me, right? But, but there's some great stuff like Lecrae and The Ambassador and some of these guys and Tadashi. And, so I, I, and I, like, I, I listen to that and that sometimes, right? So I'm not adopting and becoming a hip-hop guy because of Kanye. So I'm not, don't think of me as a bandwagon guy, but I heard this guy in the news, like, well, I'm gonna listen to it. And you know what? It's a good album. Now here's the thing. Everyone, Christians are freaking out. Because some Christians are like, oh, wow, this is great. And, and, and there's people that are, and there's other Christians that are going, wait a second. Kanye West made a Christian album? Huh, I don't think so. Well, let's see, let's see if that lasts, huh. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. See, when Jesus was walking around in his ministry, the Pharisees and other people would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because he's born in Nazareth, which is kind of like, no offense, like um, Tonopah, you know? Like, <laughs> no, no, it just wasn't like, no, no offense. I mean, it's not bad, it's not bad. It's just way out there, right? It's way out there. I, sorry, no, don't take that bad. But it's just like a small town that you don't think that like a lot of cool stuff's gonna happen out there, right? And they have, I don't know, they think they have a good sports team, like football, their high school football team's good or whatever, I think. But anyway, the point is, I don't know. Forget I said that, but it's way out there. And I think the same thing is people can go, can anything good come out of Hollywood? Like seriously, can anything good come out of Hollywood? That place is a sewer, right? Is God not the Lord of Hollywood? The Bible says, all, Jesus says, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. This earth is mine. It's mine. It's mine. Even Hollywood. Now, the Bible also says don't lay hands on a person too early. So, I mean, like Kanye, like he ain't gonna become an elder in our church anytime soon. You know what I mean? And if he writes a theology book, I'm not sure I'd wanna, you know, it's like, dude, you need some, even Paul himself, the apostle Paul had 15 years from the time of his conversion until he went into ministry. So, I mean, there's, there's a time of preparation. So, so will, will his conversion last? You hope it will. But the attitude shouldn't be, yeah, right. It should be, and I, and I listen to it. You know what I like about this album? Because I'm like, hey, I don't know. He, it's between him and the Lord. I mean, I, but I listen to it and I go, you know what? For, if, at, at, at worst, at worst, God commandeered this man's voice and his talent for a time so that there would be praises sung to him. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I listen to it. Wow. God, you can do anything. You are king of Hollywood. You are the king of Hollywood. That's powerful. It's very powerful. And, and so, but see, that's the thing. It's like, okay, we sit there and go, well, God doesn't do stuff like that. God doesn't save people like that. Why not? Okay? Now, here's the thing that you have to understand about this. We can't become people who say, well, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but if you really wanna be in the club, you gotta get cleaned up. Now, don't get me wrong. We need every person who says they're a follower of Jesus has a responsibility to live a godly lifestyle, okay? Because if following Christ is making him Lord of my life. 
So, so, but here's the thing, like I talked about the whole transgender thing, right? Do you understand that what's happening right now in the culture means that in 15 or 20 years from now, we're gonna have adults who were sexually mutilated when they were little kids because they were three and they said, I like, I, I'm not, I'm, I wanna be a girl. And our crazy culture sexually mutilated them to an irreversible place. And now they're gonna be adults and I think they will be hopping mad about what was done to them when they were little kids but they can't do anything about it because you can't undo that stuff, right? And then, they're gonna, and then what's gonna happen? They're gonna come into church and God's gonna call them and rescue them because he loves them. And then are we gonna go, well, what do you do with that person? I'll tell you what you do. You praise the glorious grace of Jesus that he saves everybody. Yeah, and, you, and we, we wrap our arms around people and, and show them the love of God. And we just, we, so here, here's the thing. For Compass Church, the threat to the purity of the gospel is usually gonna come from the right, not the left. Now, okay, here, let me explain. I don't mean the political right or the left. Personally, I, I mean, I, I tend to lean politically more on the right. I mean, just, just look at government, that kind of thing. That's just, so you do. But I drop most of that stuff when I, when I talk here. I, it's, it's not about that. So it's not political. But it is, here's what I mean by right and left. Theologically, okay, in other words, the liberal side on the left, the people that go, Jesus isn't really God, the Bible isn't really the word of God, all roads lead to, to heaven, that crowd, that's easy for us to deal with. Like we spot that a mile away and we go, no, nah, we're not, we're not gonna cave on that stuff. And like, you guys have been with me and you've been with us, our leadership, it's just we don't, we don't cave on that stuff, okay? We believe in the authority of scripture, we believe in the, in the deity of Jesus, you know, and, and whatever. So we don't have to worry about that. Our threat comes from the other side, which is going to be those who, who talk like Christians, who look like Christians, who know the lingo, who, who, who have their lives pretty much together, but, but don't really understand the gospel. And what they really think, and this is the second thing, many people substitute moralistic self-help for the truth of the gospel. In other words, there's this assumption that if you're really a Christian, you're gonna kinda clean up your life, and then you can be financially secure, and you know, if basically, if you obey God, he'll bless you, right? And it turns into this moralism that you start adding in all this wonderful way to live the American lifestyle. Now, I love the American lifestyle, and I, I don't like it when people criticize it, but understand that's not what saves you. You might get saved by God and called to a life of suffering because that's his glory in you while you're here on this earth. That's not my business. That's between you and the Lord. I can't say, but I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that if you, that, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And then if he saves you, all you got to do is just be a good person and life will go well for you. And if it doesn't go well for you, you must be doing something wrong or whatever. But see, these kinds of things come from that other side that say, well, it's the gospel, but it's also you got to vote this way, and you got to live this way, and you got to act, you got to look this way, and you got to kind of, you got to believe this way on certain issues, and you got to get your life all cleaned up because that's what really makes a a person, you know, a good Christian. And all it is is moralism without the gospel. See, when God rescues a person, he rescues him for his own purpose. And like I said, and we've had people in this church who've been rescued by God, and then for some reason, God seems to ordain them to a life of difficulty and suffering. And I don't know why that is, but I know it's true. And it's not because that person sinned. It's because, because God makes his, his um, power perfect in their weakness. 
That, and that's the, that's, the, that's the hard truth, right? But that's a different message than, well, you know, let's all just kind of look good together and make sure we're not screwing up too much and then we'll know we'll go to heaven. No, God, our message is that God redeems people and saves them for his glory and his purpose and his purpose alone. And what he does with our lives is his business. That's a hard truth, but it's true. In any case, part of the reason that the right is more insidious than the left is it feels safer on the right. It feels safer to go, well, we better make sure that we don't let these people in. We better make sure that we don't compromise. And if you know me, I'm all about not compromising. I'm just saying that what, what's happening. So what does Paul say? Look at, therefore, rebuke them sharply. This should be on the screen. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So you see that? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but rebuke them. Now, rebuke means to bring someone to the point of recognizing their wrongdoing, right? So rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith so that the people may really know what we believe and not, and not be moved from one way or the other. So what we need to do is pray, this is my other point, pray for the courage to stand up to those who distort the gospel by adding stuff. And can I just tell you, in my time here at Compass Church, and I hinted at this before, the, the people that have been the most difficult to deal with have never been the people on the left. Because they're, they're easy. It's like, you know, fine, if you don't agree with me on the, on the Bible being the word of God, I mean, we can go and debate that all day, but it's like, you're easy to spot. And they're usually not super involved in stuff. It's the people on the right, like I said, who oftentimes are my, are my really, I mean, I say my, I say our, they're, they're some of our best givers. They're some of our best leaders at times, or, or at least they're super highly involved. And they don't know the gospel and they start getting nervous when those people start showing up, or they start getting nervous when we talk about when it feels like the lines are slipping, and they got the knife in their hand. And they're like, we gotta keep, we gotta keep it pure, man. Whoa. And those are the people that have been much more difficult because it's more insidious, it's harder to see, because they look and sound and act like wonderful people. So you have to be on the lookout for that, and you have to look, be on the lookout at it in your, in your own life, right? So finally, he, you know, when he says, if you look at back at the verse, we'll go back to the verse where he says, um, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. I love that. I love that. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. This is one of those things that you should file away in your head. You know why? Because it's kind of like innuendos. See, one of the problems with our culture is getting to the point now where you can't say anything without someone taking it as an innuendo, Right? So like even, even like, you know, um, well, there's just so many different examples that you could have. Like you, you it's, we're like, we're becoming like a bunch of middle school students on the playground, right? You say something, oh, well, what do you mean by that? Or even now, like there's these new rules, like because of, you know, all the stuff with the Me Too and everything else. So there's people going, well, if you compliment a woman, it's like, that's harassment because you compliment on her looks. And it's like, because the assumption is that you're making some kind of sexual predatory kind of statement by saying that she has nice hair or whatever else. And, and the problem is the culture has adopted this thing of like, well, let's just throw out anything that's pure because we want to be free. So then everything becomes impure, which means everything's impure, which means you can't say anything anymore because it's going to be seen with an impure motive. But to the person that's pure, it's not. And it's so, such a wonderful freedom. You actually get your language back. Y you know, 
You get your language back when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're walking in purity, then you're not always the one looking out for I wonder what they're, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? What did you say? What'd, when you said that, I think what you're, it's like every, there's people out there always looking for something wrong. But he's saying to the ones that are walking in purity and holiness, it's just like, don't read into anything, you know? Don't read into anything. They're just, they're just living their life and, and, and you're gonna miss certain things. And that's why I sound like the staff will joke with me because over the years I've said things like, I've said things from the stage and I didn't realize I was saying it. Less about the fact that I'm so pure, but more just because I'm talking and I'm not totally thinking about what's coming out of my mouth. But I'll say things and I'll go, you can't say that in the next service because I was like total innuendo and you didn't mean, I'm like, oh shoot, and I feel terrible, you know, and some of this stuff slips out. But again, it's that whole thing of when you're living for the Lord, you're gonna live and walk around and you're gonna, and, you, and it's like, there's, there's, a, there's a restoration of your motives. And that's a beautiful thing. Now again, that, that brings freedom because we don't have to walk around going, well, if I say this, they're gonna think this, and if I do this, and they can get interpreted as that. It's like, that's bondage, man. That's just, it's a prison. So God renews our minds. Not every act or intention is laced with some kind of immoral motive. And that's how we need to see each other. You know? I really hope that you experience God legitimately rescuing someone in, in your life who votes differently than you, who thinks differently than you on almost every issue, and watch how God restores them, no matter what it is, whether you like love Trump or you hate Trump or whether you're, you know, whether it's immigration or like almost any issue, I would love to see God, someone, God rescue someone who's opposite of you and opposite of me because it's about him being able to get the glory. So this is the, my last thing I'll tell you. You may be the last person that God would ever, that you think God ever would ever love. In other words, when I say God rescues the strangest people, you might think I'm the strangest person. Because you're like a misfit when it comes to church. You're the person that you think gets struck by the lightning bolt. You're the person that walks in and says, I'm different from everybody else. These people don't understand me. I'm not like them. I'm not one of those people that would be like, church person. Can I tell you something? If that's you, you're exactly the person God wants to rescue. You're exactly the person Jesus died for. And the very reason you're here is because God is trying to reach you right where you are. Now, I'll say this in love to you, but you've heard this now. You've heard that God, the blood of Jesus, rescues even you. Those of you that are sitting back there like, but I don't know what I'm doing here. Or he's not talking to me, or I'm different. I'm talking to you, and now you've heard, and now you don't have an excuse. You cannot say that no one ever told you that God's love and grace extends to yes, even you. That's it. So I'm gonna invite Gabe and Steve to come out, and they're gonna lead us in a song, and as they do, I want, you, I want to challenge you with two things. If you're here today and you say, I'm beyond the love of Jesus, I want you to, to do what we call repent of that, which means change your mind and say, I, I'm not going to think that anymore. If you're a misfit, then God came for the misfits. God came for you. The other thing I want you to repent of is maybe you're the one that you realize today, you're the one holding the knife. You've been on the lookout. You need to repent of that. You need to repent of that. 
and you need to live the rest of your life being blown away by the mercy of God who calls us to redeem us and then to purify us so that we would live a life pleasing to him, but he calls all of us. So let's think about that as these guys are singing. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.